0: Well, we've come together to commemorate the life of Master Kripal Singh and to read from his words and be in his remembrance and be in the company of each other. So this is a brief reading from Chapter 7 of the Ambrosial Hour. Master Kripal Singh, Make Each Breath an Offering. Always live in the living present, in the living moment. Did you read my circular on this point? If you care for the living moment, you can care for eternity. Read the circulars and go into them deeply. If you care for the pennies, the pounds will be saved. Is it not so? If you keep your mind occupied every moment, then nothing can go wrong. It is given very briefly in the circulars. Brevity is the soul of all creation Brevity is the soul of all creation The master's sayings are brief But to the point So if you watch the present moment Then everything will be alright If you don't care Sometimes for hours you're oblivious And in those vacant hours There's so much trouble that comes up Which affects your meditations So when you sit for meditation, forget the past, forget the future, live in the living present. This is one thing that will give you success in your meditations. But the vacant hours in which you've not kept your mind occupied with some constructive thought, those affect your meditation. So that is the remedy that accounts for all of these things. If you would pass your every hour in peace with no ill will against anybody, no attachment to anybody, if you can pass each hour like that for one day, then continuously for some additional days, no such ramifications of mind will come up to affect your meditation. But we are frittering away our moments of life in such like pursuits. Kabir says, make each breath you take the offering to your master. Do you follow what I have said? Every breath that you take, make it an offering to your master. This is very valuable. Kabir says, we are frittering away a fortune. If a dying man wishes to stay for a few minutes longer, he cannot. So how frivolously we kill our time. Every moment of life is valuable, so make the best use of it. When death overtakes us, that is the time that you say, Oh, had I some additional time that had been given to me, I would have done this or that thing. Is it not so? But you cannot get that time then, which has been frittered away so ruthlessly. Kabir says in one breath he crossed three planes, the physical, the astral, and the causal. So you see, one breath is very valuable. One saint has said, if you can pass three days and nights in sweet constant remembrance of God, you go to his feet. Three days. Can we do that? It's not much. Let no other thought other than God strike your mind. Why not start with one day? Start from today. All right, from now on until tomorrow evening, no thought, just constant remembrance. Even when you eat, don't forget him. Try that for one day. That will give you good training. We don't care for the trifling things. But that is where the substantial thing will come from. One day is not much. So you have been here how many days? So many days. And if you had passed even one day and night in constant remembrance, you would have changed very much. This is the brief chapter from volume one of the teachings of Kripal Singh on meditation. God is not found in books, as only statements about him are given in books. Nor can he be found in temples of stone that were made by the hand of man. In these we gather together only to pray to God or to thank him for all that he has given us. He resides within you. The body is the true temple of God. When you have understood this, then where do you go to find him? First within your own self withdraw from the outside, withdraw from the mind, withdraw from the outgoing faculties, and come up to the seat of the soul at the back of the eyes. Once you are able to rise above body consciousness, then you will enter into an awareness of the higher order, which lies beyond the reach of all philosophies and psychologies. For then you are on your way to the causeless cause, the mother of all causes, knowing which everything else becomes known of itself like an open book. This then is the alpha and omega of the religion of soul and begins where all religious philosophies end. Here all thinking, all planning, all imagining and fantasy as mentioned in the diaries, they fall off like autumn leaves. So the whole of this life's purpose is to become still, to withdraw from the outer environments, and to concentrate. The whole of this life's purpose is to become still, to withdraw from the outer environments, and to concentrate. You have great strength within you. You are the child of a lion. It is a rare privilege to gather together in his name and to invoke his gracious mercy and to imbibe the sacred teachings. Satsang is the central theme of the sacred teachings and I always impress upon the dear ones here and abroad not to miss it. As it is during these precious moments that you were near the fountainhead of bliss and immortality, that you can grasp the true import of the teachings and assimilate the rare virtues of godliness by sitting in the charged atmosphere which is filled with his loving life impulses. It is the pool of nectar which grants blissful God intoxication And all differences of caste, creed, and country sink down to their lowest ebb. So, your purpose in coming to Satsang is to imbibe the love of God, to sit in His sweet remembrance, and to unite with Him. All things past and future, all irrelevant matters, can be dealt with in your own place of residence. Come, but come with the very best of intentions. Bring the remembrance of the Lord with you. Take it with you when you leave. Don't listen to others' conversations and don't talk to anyone else unless it is about the truth. You will thereby gain full benefit from the satsang. Otherwise, years will pass without any real advancement. And even though you may not understand what is said, yet if you will sit with full attention you will profit by it. If your thoughts are somewhere else, not only will you lose, but other people will also be affected by the impure atmosphere that you are creating. For thoughts are living and they possess great power. So regard the satsang as a place of purity. Do not talk or think of anything but God, and whosoever attends will be blessed by the uplifting atmosphere. Russell will now read I mean, Give us Kivisatsang.
1: I want to begin today by reading a section from Master Kripal's book The Coming Spiritual Revolution which I love very much. It's one of my favorite of all sections. And as a consequence I have read it a great deal over the years and many of you may be extremely familiar with this and I can only say that I am compelled to keep on reading it as I grow older there are certain you know parts of the path or things that the masters have said which I find myself zeroing in on without much effort on my part it's just where where I'm at anyway this is the concluding section of the talk that Master gave on January 24th, 1964 at Mr. Kanna's house in Washington, D.C. called How I Met My Master. But this part begins, actually he has finished talking about how he met his Master, and he has Taiji B.B. Hardavi, who looked after the Master on his tour, the first two tours, and who was sitting on the floor at his feet, and she sang a beautiful bhajan that he had written. Then he comments on the bhajan, and then he gets into other things. One of the reasons I love this talk is that I was present when it was given, and I was also sitting on the floor just a very few feet away from him. I was taping this discourse. And in the course of this particular talk, Master quotes verbatim from the farewell discourses in the Gospel of John. Long, long quotations from it. And, you know, he was going strictly from memory. He had no notes. I was in a position to be very aware. He had no notes of any kind. He had obviously memorized those discourses in the same way that he learned Persian in order to read Milana Rumi's Masnavi in the original. Anyway, Bibi Hardevi, known as Taiji, sings one of Master's songs, an exquisitely beautiful prayer. The following is Master's description of the contents of the prayer and his discourse on it. When we take the first step of joining any religion, we go to churches and to the holy places of worship, where the ministers of those churches tell us to repeat the scriptures from day to day. They give us the same story. There is God. There is Son of God. You can meet him through the Son of Man. God is within you. The kingdom of God is within you. These teachings are only meant to develop love and devotion within us to know God. By hearing them, a strong desire to know God is developed. And then those who, by reading scriptures and hearing daily lectures, have gained that strong desire in them to see God, say, O oh ministers, stop all the reading of these scriptures to me now. Tell me how to see him. The wish to know God has been developed in me. That's an earnest desire. I don't like your preachings anymore. Now tell me how to know God, how to see God. All through life we've been hearing these long yarns. God is there. God is within you. You have joined this religion, remain in this religion. Oh, minister, what are you doing? You are after keeping your formations intact. No one should leave them. And I am after finding God. Religions have to do with my body. If he is within me and beyond all senses, then tell me how to know him, how to see him. That's the earnest desire of any lover of God. And someone asked the question. Actually, it was Leon Ponset from Denver, if any of you remember Leon or know him. Maraji. but when you ask a minister how to find God, His normal answer would be, if you read the scriptures and if you live right, after you die, then Christ will show you the kingdom of God. And Master says, that's all right. Religions only promise experience of God after death, not in life. But mysticism promises it in life and Masters, never after death. If you want to live on credit, it is your own choice. For everything in this world you want cash. If in the case of this life and death problem you would like to wait till after death, it's up to you. Then the natural question arises. If you are yearning and pining to see God so much, why don't you die in that separation? You have perhaps heard about Lord Rama. His wife Sita was abducted abducted by a king named Ravana. She was under his arrest for many years. Lord Rama first wanted to find a clue whether Sita was there or not. Hanuman, the monkey king, went there and found that she was there. When he came back, he brought the clue to Lord Rama. Sita is there, alive. Then Rama asked him, why did she not die? She said that if she were separated from me, she would die. Why is she alive? You see, strong yearning means that. A fish cannot live without water. People say this, but really it's not so. Then what did he reply? The soul of Sita left the body, but is waiting in the eyes. Why? Because if the angel of death comes, he will not find her in the body, but she's waiting in the eyes to see you. So strong a yearning is the natural feat of love. All masters, whenever they came, said the same thing. The tenth guru of the Sikhs said, Hear ye all, I tell you the truth. Irrespective of whether you belong to one religion or the other, that makes no difference. Through love alone you can know God. All others also said the same thing. Those who do not know love cannot know God. Christ said, If you love me, keep my commandments. What did he say? I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him. But ye know him, for he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. I will not leave you comfortless, I will come to you again. And I should point out that the word comforter here, which Master uses, he's quoting from the King James Version of the Bible, and the Greek word parakletos is translated as comforter in that version. And that's in my opinion, that's a good translation, not that my opinion matters much in these things, but I like the translation comforter because I do feel that the Holy Spirit is very comforting. But the fact is that the primal meaning of the word, it is now pretty clear, and it is usually translated in more modern versions of this way, is that of advocate. An advocate is a defense attorney. In other words, what Christ is promising here is that what he is sending, however he is manifesting with his disciples, will be taking their part. He will be on their side. He will be protecting them and defending them from various onslaughts that we may have to encounter. And it's important, the Master is identifying himself throughout this passage, I believe, with this comforter, this advocate. And that's the way. If we ever think, you know, that the Master or God is after us or is looking to find fault with us or is interested in judging us, we have Jesus' word for it. No, that's not the way it is at all. The Master, the Holy Spirit, the Master Power is our defense attorney. He's on our side. He loves us. And he's there for us. And this is a great privilege that we have got. So Master says, if two men, four men, love the same man, that's a point for consideration. True love is where there is no question of competition. When there are two lovers of the same Master, they compete. One says, I should be in front. And the other says, I should be in front. But love knows no duality, no competition, no anger, and no coming to the front. Just judge your love for the master. Why does all this conflict remain among the followers? Because they have not got real love, I tell you. If they have got real love, love knows no competition. Each one will be happy the more he can put his shoulders to the wheel for the same cause. Christ said further, But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance, whatsoever I have said unto you. Peace I leave with you, my peace will remain with you forever. So as I told you, love knows no competition. When two followers of the same Master do not agree, one says, I am in the forefront, and the other says, I am in the forefront. What is the result? To me, apparently, such a follower has no love for the Master. True love. He has love for the Master for selfish motives. He wants to come near to him, to the forefront of him. So love is the remedy for all things. Love and all things shall be added unto you. That's the pity. We don't love. And then Christ said, As the Father hath loved me, so I have loved you. Continue ye in my love. If ye keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love even as I kept my father's commandments and I abide in his love. He loved his master, his God. He said, I give you a new commandment, love one another. There we are wanting, I tell you. I have been pressing this point very much ever since I've come. This is the only remedy for all our ills. If one man goes ahead, it is his grace. In the beginning, I used to put in more time. I was transferred to Rawalpindi. The first day I was there, everybody knew it. a follower of the Master, they were saying this and that thing. That even came to be known to Bibi Hardavi, who is sitting here. She never knew me before that. People said, well, he's here. He's a very great follower of the Master. She said, what greatness lies in him? He puts in six hours a day in meditation. She said, all right, if he puts that in, then I'll put in six, seven hours, and then I'll meet him. Such like competition is good. You see, we want to eclipse others. We want to eclipse others by placing ourselves in the front. So that if she did not come to see me, I tell you, laughing. Actually, Master and Taiji were both laughing quite a lot throughout this whole section. For months on end. When she put in six or seven hours a day, then she, along with her husband, came to see me. But only when? When my son died. I was quite jolly and the doctor came in the night. He gave my son this and that thing. I told him, All right, give him whatever you wish, he has to go. Let him finish his give and take. At about midnight he took the breath of death. He had a long period of vomiting and became cold. I had sent for the doctor, and when he came, he said, I'll give him some medicine and he'll be all right. But in the morning, my son was quite ready to go. The doctor said, oh, he now looks better all of a sudden. I said, wait outside, he's just going. So I looked at him, and he passed away. At that time, everyone came to see me. I'm relating this to show how this family, Taiji and her husband, came in contact with me. She and her husband also met me and they were wonderstruck. Your son has died and you're quite jolly. It's not usual not to worry and to be like that. A lot of people came to visit and they said somebody in the Sikh temple had said that here's a true Sikh coming up. He's a credit to our religion. And her husband heard about it and thought, he must be a follower of my master. He never knew me before. He went and inquired about it and it was so. He told them, look here, he's my brother who has been going and sitting at the feet of my master. So they came to pay me their condolences and they were wonderstruck. What did I do? I gave them tea and this and that thing. So such-like competition is good. And I should make it clear here. The reason that Master could be jolly when his son died is because even though he was a disciple still at that point, he was a very advanced one, and he was well aware of the totality of what was happening. In other words, he was not dependent only on the physical level for knowledge and understanding of his son. I was around him a number of times when questions of death came up. And he was always extremely light-hearted. But he had great respect for people's grief all the same. I remember I was in India one time. There was a, a, a sevadar at Sawan Ashram, Pandit Ram, who had been with Master a long time. And he lived at the ashram, he and his wife. And his wife died while we were there. And people were very sad. They were well-loved, long-time people. And we were standing around outside the ashram wondering what was going to happen, what was going on like that. Master came out and he saw us and he said, well, our friend is gone. You know, it's like, that's what happens. And he was very aware that she was in a very good place and that he would be in continual contact with her. But when her husband came, Pandit Daniram, Master put his arm around him and treated him with such love and grace and compassion. So gentle he was. You know, if we don't have that sense or that awareness, that dimension that the Masters have of knowing, naturally we're going to grieve. And it's a good thing. I mean, it's part of nature. There's no harm in it at all. It's natural to mourn loss. But, of course, from the Master's point of view, there was no loss, you see. Or the loss on the physical plane was negligible compared to that which was there. So, now, what one man does, others reflect on it. Put your shoulders to the wheel. The more one progresses, the better. Why are there all these conflicts? Because we do not love the Master, truly speaking. If anybody has become the beloved of the Master, it's good. You should also become the beloved. See how the other one has become the beloved. Why does the Master love him? There must be a reason for it. Such like love knows no competition, no saying. Why has the other man gone forward? Quietly and unknowingly, they are going on doing it. They won't show what they are doing. They'll go on and let others see for themselves. These are the things that are required. Christ said, Love one another as I loved you. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man may lay down his life, love no service and sacrifice, for his friends. What did Christ say? Do you know? Ye are my friends. He did not want to make us slaves. Masters never make you a slave. The beauty of our master was that he addressed us very respectfully, very lovingly. A master never makes slaves of you. He makes you friends. And why? If you do whatsoever I command you, henceforth I call you not servants, for the servant knoweth not what the Lord doeth. But I have called you my friends, for all things I have known of my Father, I have made known to you. Do you follow? There are some so called masters, I tell you, who treat others like their slaves, bought slaves. They make the best use of them. And I tell you, Master's conditions are very strong. Anyone who wants to take the service of his other disciple mates without the permission of the Master, Master turns away his face from him. We consider it jolly. Oh, everybody now loves me. He serves me. He gives me sacrifices. He gives me so many boons and donations. We shouldn't. Whenever you have to compare, make the comparison that if one man does more, you will do still more. If he does, say, four hours of meditation, you put in five hours. That's a good competition, is it not? But that we do not do. That is a pity and this is the basic cause of all conflicts, of all differences of opinion. Formations are made when we are wanting in love, I tell you honestly. And someone asked the question Maharaji, why don't you interpret the song that Madam Hardevi sang? And Master says, I gave you the gist of that. It went, They cry, Oh, Minister, you have been repeating all the scriptures to me for ages. Now tell me how to find him, where to find him. Yes, where to find him, how to find him. I know I have to find him, but I do not know where and how. Religions all tell us that, but they do not tell us where to find him and how to find him. Those who are ministers are after keeping their religions intact and letting nobody run away out of them. They say, don't go to hear about any other religion, for if you do you won't remain a Christian or a Hindu or a Mohammedan. They are after that, and the lovers say, how can I find God? All lovers are one. We are to join the army of God, mind that. But ministers keep you stuck fast in your dungeons, in watertight compartments. You are not to run away from this one, not to attend others. If you hear that, it will be a sin. What are all these things? These appear to be ridiculous, is it not so? That's it. So formations result in stagnation. Religions go on so long as awakened men are there. Among those who are not awakened, they become strongholds. One religion begins to hate the other. And the stagnation takes this form. In this way only you are acceptable to God. But we have to see with what love you perform one ritual or the other. That love counts, not the ritual or how you perform it. And naturally, stagnation results in deterioration. That's the cause of all these conflicts. They are spending thousands and millions of dollars for the upkeep of their own formations. They have been ready to kill hundreds and thousands of men for the sake in religious wars that they would not like to serve those hungry gods moving on earth. I am giving you only a common sense talk. Uh, Mr. Khanna then commented, there will be no interviews this evening. Master has been giving out since after nine this morning. And Master started laughing again. No interviews? Do you want any more interviews after 10.15? That's, that's what time it was at this point. Well, if there is anybody, he is welcome. I have no objection whatsoever. Who are they? Yes, they're welcome. All right, let them make the best use of me. And that was where the talk ended. I want to also read a brief section from Master Kripal's account of his master's life, Baba Sowenson. This also is one of my very favorite pieces. It has been this was one of the very earliest circulars that was available to us when I was first on the path. I've always been extremely happy with it. Actually, I think I will jump ahead a little, uh, jump back a little bit. And in the same discussion, Master talks about miracles a little bit. And because there's sometimes misunderstandings, on the part of satsangis, about the nature of miracles. I think it would be interesting to read what Master has to say. Many seemingly miraculous things can happen around a true Master. I saw many amazing incidents through being connected with Hazur Maharaji, that is, Baba Saman Singh, from which I will tell of two. In the Holy Bible, it is written that Jesus Christ gave sight to the blind. In the early 30s in Rawalpindi, a lady lost her eyesight and after consultation with the best specialist, it was found that the optical nerves had shriveled and there was no hope of recovering the sight. She could see nothing, though outwardly there seemed to be no difference. Inwardly, however, she was constantly enjoying the darshan of Baba Sawan Singh Ji and was therefore not at all dismayed. Two days of blindness passed and on the third day I was sitting with her and her husband when she said, the master and another man are discussing something. The gentleman is beseeching Hazur, saying, Hazur, have mercy, please give her sight back. Now Hazur is saying, all right, all right. The lady's husband, sitting with closed eyes, suddenly saw a brilliant light and at exactly that time the lady who was lying on the bed got up and ran across the room, saying, I can see, I can see. In an apparently magical way, her eyesight had been restored. Now, the lady, of course, was Bibi Hardavi, or Taiji, the same lady who had the meditation contest with Master that we just read about. And this, this is a well-known story. There, uh, there is a, a variant of it in Julian Johnson's book With a Great Master in India, uh, written very close to the time it happened, in which he gives basically the same story from not quite as intimate a point of view. But the story is told much more completely from, I'm sure, Taiji's uh, point of view. She was the source in the new biography Love, Light, and Life, in which goes into a lot of detail. The gentleman... Who was beseeching Hazur was, as Taiji never denied, in fact made a point of saying, was Kripal Singh, who even at that point was in a position to be able to do that. And it was at his intercession that the Master restored her sight. There is also an account in the Bible of Jesus feeding 5,000 people with a little bread in a basket, each one being fully fed and satisfied. Azur used to visit his hometown from time to time, usually accompanied by hundreds of followers, and there was always a free kitchen arrangement for them. On one visit, there was a large group of Akali Sikhs camped nearby for some special celebration. The Akali Sikhs, who still exist, by the way, are a very militant branch of the Sikh religion, and you might call them fundamentalist Sikhs, and they can be very violent. It was a Kali Sikhs who assassinated Indira Gandhi, for example. And they were very opposed to the masters who, of course, the last few masters, Jamal Singh, Salman Singh, Kripal Singh, and Ajay Singh were all members of the Sikh religion outwardly. They were born into the Sikh religion and maintained its usages. And this infuriated the Akalis uh, because they felt they were basically heretics. There were a number of incidents where they made lots of efforts to try to prevent the masters from giving their message. So on one visit there was a large group of Akali Sikhs camped nearby for some special celebration. These Akalis were against Baba Salon Singh's teachings So they planned to bring disgrace upon him by going to his free kitchen after the meal had finished and the kitchen closed. Note here the underlying concept. I always find this fascinating because from my point of view, I think the point of view of most Westerners would say, well, so what? The kitchen's closed, the food is gone, go away. But the masses don't do like that. If anyone comes to them and asks for something, even if they do it out of hostility... The masters give it to them. This is part of the point of something what we can call their radical inclusiveness, which I'll get into a little more a little later. Nearly 300 of them sat down outside the kitchen door and demanded that food be served to them immediately. Someone told me what had happened, and I hurried to the kitchen to find that there was just half a basket of bread. I called the cook and told him to light the fires and make more bread, but the 300 people outside started shouting for food. Just then, Hazur entered the kitchen and said, Kripal Singh, why are you not giving them food? I replied, Hazur, there's only half a basket full of bread. How can I feed 300 people with that? We have to make more. Baba Sawan Singh smiled and said, Fear not, but cover the basket with a cloth and go on serving the bread. I did as Hazur had instructed, and the three hundred men ate and ate until they could eat no more, and when the meal was finished there was still the same amount of bread left as there had been at the start. It is very often considered that miracles are just stories invented out of the imagination, but in fact very few people know what a miracle truly is. The word itself literally means things which astonish. Coleridge says that the fact that Christ performed miracles was verification that he was carrying out his father's orders. Locke says that miracles are like a letter of promise from God which saints and avatars bring with them to this world. The common man does not know how such happenings are performed and calls them miracles, which actually shows his ignorance of the real facts. In the Patanjali Sutra, of Maharishi Patanjali, in the third stanza, verses 50 through 51, it is written that creating worldly things like curing the sick, making barren women fertile, producing precious gems, etc., are called riddis and siddhis, and performing these things beset the way of perfection. It is no proof of perfection. For he who goes into samadhi, the state of leaving the body at will, Such things are like plucked flowers scattered before and behind him on his path. A true pilgrim in search of God will never stoop to pick them up. So-called miracles are merely a child's play which can be done by focusing the mind to a single point. All perfect masters are in control of these powers but do not work through them. Milana Rumi, that is of course the ultra-famous Jalaluddin Rumi, was a teacher, and he first met his master, Shamus Brez when he was giving a lesson to a number of children. Hazrat Shamus Brez, who, who outwardly looked extremely nondescript and, and no account, by the way, he was a, basically dressed like a beggar, a wandering darvish. And Rumi, at this point, was his father was a world-class Islamic theologian and he himself had a reputation as a teacher. Milana Rumi replied, This is that knowledge of which you know nothing. Shamus de Brés kept quiet, but when the boys left for the break period, he took all the books and slates and threw them into a nearby pond. When Malana Rumi returned with the boys, they demanded to know where their books were. Shamus de Brés took them to the pond and one by one took out the books. But astonishingly, they were all dry. Milana Rumi, his eyes wide open with surprise, said, What is this? Shamus de Bray's replied, This is that knowledge of which you know nothing. As is well known, Milana Rumi later became the disciple of Shamus de Bray's and eventually succeeded him in mastership. What I want to impress about this subject is that miraculous happenings are merely the fruit of concentrated attention and that true masters do not give them any importance because they have gone far past the stage. Hafiz Saab says, Do not mention miracles to me because I have crossed that stage and I am where such things are not necessary. Perfect masters never work through these lower powers and they forbid true seekers from doing so because they are an obstruction on the path to God. However, through meditation, the student will automatically acquire them, but they are forbidden to be used. Even though the masters use them at times for certain purposes, they will tell you that the greatest miracle is when they raise the soul above the mind and the senses, thereby severing the knot which binds it to the wheel of births and deaths. The progress which the Mahatmas used to achieve in thousands of years by the grace of Hazur Baba Sawan Singh Ji Maharaj, is today achieved in months. Great masters have the most miraculous power of making the holy Nam manifest in others. What more miracle than this is to be desired? Now, note the qualification, even though the masters use them at times for certain purposes. Fact is that anyone who has spent any amount of time around a master knows very well that they do miracles quite a lot. But what is true of all masters, including the Buddha, including Jesus, including the prophets, is that they don't do miracles for the purpose of impressing or convincing others. They do them for reasons of compassion or as acted out parables— the miracles that Jesus did that are included in the Gospel of John, the turning of the water into wine, the feeding of the 5,000, which Master had mentioned, the healing of the man born blind, the resurrection of Lazarus, they are in the same order of things as the parables which Jesus told in the other Gospels. In John, there are no parables as such, but these particular miracles are acted out parables by which Jesus is teaching. And that kind of miracle sometimes the masters do. And also, they just have so much compassion that they cannot, it is very difficult for them to avoid healing or giving solace or peace, especially if requested. And it does, of course, take something out of the master to do that. And this is why almost all, maybe all masters, have generally died very painful, sometimes violent, uh, always difficult deaths, because the amount of other people's karma they take on themselves is extraordinary. You know, I can think of hundreds of instances that I am personally aware of where Master Kripal or Sanchi took on karma from other people, including sometimes me. And God knows what it took out of them. I want to read a little bit further in this same article, This Life of Baba Sawan Singh, which Master talks about the partition of India when India became two countries, India and Pakistan, back in 1947. Baba Sawan Singh was, of course, still in the body, although The amount of grace that he extended to people suffering in this affair was, again, it took a lot out of him. And he died in a lot of pain shortly after. Master says, no religion permits the immolation of women or the killing of persons. But alas, what man has done with man is too scandalous to be put on record. After the partition of this country, the people, in the name of religion, polluted the chastity of women and killed hundreds of thousands of innocent persons. If all this gruesome and ghastly dance of death cannot serve to open our eyes, we cannot possibly mend ourselves. If we had a grain of feeling in us, we ought to hang our heads in shame. There are, however, a few awakened souls among us But these are very rare, and such rendered a valuable yeoman service in those most trying and troubled times. I would like to relate a couple of instances of Hazur in those days. Hazur was physically ailing, for the body alone is subject to diseases, and the great souls very often vicariously take upon themselves the people's burden of karmic action. During partition days, when passions were running high, some Muslims came to Hazur for protection. He lovingly kept them in the Dera. Of course, at this point, in, in this part of the Punjab, which is right on the border of what became Pakistan, and in fact, Master Kripal's hometown and the city he worked in, Lahore, for most of his adult life, all became part of Pakistan. Sawan Singh's ashram, the Dera at Bayas, was right on the border. And at this period, Muslims and Sikhs, as well as Hindus, were mortal enemies. But Hazur is concerned for the Muslims. He lovingly kept them in the Dera. In September 1947, Hazur planned to go to Amritsar. When I went to see him with the hope of accompanying him to Amritsar, Azur bade me remain at Dera, and look after the comforts of the Dera people and the Muslims, according to the exigencies at the moment. A Muslim caravan was to leave that day for Pakistan. Azur therefore enjoined me to escort the Muslims of the Dera to that caravan. It so happened that a torrential downpour of rain came on that day. Azur felt a deep agony and said, Our Muslim brethren are in a very poor plight, but we have no sympathy for them in our heart. As Hazur started for Amritsar, he saw a huge crowd of Muslims near Bayas Railway Station. A jamadar, that is to say a soldier, was in the car with him, and in spite of his protests, Hazur ordered the car to be taken right to the Muslim horde and pulled it up just in their midst. He called for the leader of the Muslim caravan and with tears in his eyes said, I have in the dera a few Muslim brethren and would very much like to see them safely escorted across the border. Such indeed are the acts of high soul saints. His heart was full of compassion and pity for the suffering humanity. In the evening, a truckload of Muslims prepared to join the evacuees on the march when all of a sudden I heard the news that a band of armed Akalis had gathered near Dera and intended to raid it and massacre the Muslims. All alone I went to them, full of confidence in Hazur's munificence and greatness. A few of the Akalis with spears and spades blocked my way. I said to them, these helpless brethren have come to Hazur for protection. It behooves the kalsas. The kalsa, of course, is the ideal person of the Sikh religion, what what a person ought to be. It behooves the kalsas to extend the protection that they seek. The spirit of the kalsa requires no demands that those who seek mercy must be given mercy. You had better hug them to your bosom. Hearing these words, a couple of aged Akalis came forward and said, You have this day saved the Khalzas from what would otherwise have been a great sacrilege and heinous crime of taking away the life of so many of these poor souls. We shall not now touch a hair of these people. All this transformation from a bloodthirsty mood to that of sympathy and fellow feeling came through the grace of Hazur. As the truck was about to pass by the Akali's, I stopped it and said, These brethren of ours are today quitting their hearths and homes, not because of any hatred toward us, but are being driven to it by sheer necessity. We have all these years been living together in peace and concord. Will it not be good if we bid goodbye to them with loving embraces? This touched them to the core. In an instant, I found the two, Kali's and Muslims, hugging each other with tears streaming down their cheeks, the two who just a short while before were anxious to cut each other's throats. No religion permits manslaughter or genocide. We indulge in these things because we are taught the wrong way, and rebellion is used as a smokescreen For the perpetration of terrible deeds to serve selfish ends. There are instances on record wherein Muslims also saved the lives of Hindus and vice versa. The fact remains that whosoever has learned the true import of his religion has an all-embracing love for the entire humanity and is not torn by sectional and communal love. It is said, O man of wisdom, Moses, thou art sent to knit people unto me, God, and not to lead my people away from me. Once a shepherd boy, leading his goats to pasture in a meadow, sat under a tree and lovingly began to commune with God in this wise, O God, I wish that both of us should live side by side. I shall not make thee discomfortable. Shouldst thou fall ill, I shall attend thee day and night. Shouldst thou get tired, I shall massage thy hands and feet. I shall bring thee barley bread and spinach to eat and give thee goats fresh milk to drink. I shall pick up lice from thy hair and give thee a hair wash with milk and curd. The shepherd boy was deeply absorbed in these thoughts when the prophet Moses passed that way. He shouted at the boy and said, "'O fool, why art thou blaspheming? "'God is altogether unlike thee, "'shall not eat thy barley bread and spinach, "'nor shall he ever fall ill or get lice in his head.' The boy was stunned to hear this and began to tingle in every nerve and inquired, "'Perhaps I am wrong. "'I ought not to have talked like this. "'Will the great God be annoyed with me?' With these thoughts within him he began to cry. As he sobbed, he felt comforted and in harmony with the higher power. In that blissful state, he had a vision of God. The celestial visitant consoled him with the words, I shall accept all thy offerings, for I am well pleased with thee. In the meanwhile, Moses, having reached the heights of Mount Sinai, sat in meditation and felt within him the voice of God saying, O Moses, I am thoroughly annoyed with thee. Thou art guilty of breaking the heart of that shepherd boy who is communing with me with all love and affection. The prophet was surprised and said, O God, his words were not of love but were blasphemous. The great God replied, Thou knowest that the world of that boy contained nothing else but barley bread, spinach, goat's milk, and lice. I gave thee wisdom, and hadst thou utilized it, Thou wouldst not have spoken like this. I sent thee into the world that thou mayest knit to me, knit me to those who are separated from me, and not that thou shouldst rend asunder loving hearts that are one with me. Yesterday we talked, partly as a memorial, very minor memorial, to our dear sister, Doris Matajets, who left the body recently, at, but who is very active in the Satsang Prison Project. I read a number of things from the masters involving their absolute compassion and concern and identification with people whom other people would maintain are the lowest of the low. People in prison, people who are socially or culturally suspect by others as the Bible says, publicans and sinners, prostitutes for the most part. We read a number of things in which the master dealt with and loved and had compassion for and made, like himself, people who fall into those categories. And a a prison chaplain that I worked with in in New Hampshire, Chaplain Dan Smith, Wonderful guy. Judith worked with him much more closely because she went into the New Hampshire State Prison partly out of admiration and following the example of Doris Matajetz. And she held satsang in the New Hampshire State Prison every week. She told me that he said once at a gathering, the thing about Jesus is that he was radically inclusive. I've, I've never forgotten that phrase. It seems to me to sum up exactly the position of the masters, which is, I would point out, the exact opposite of the way most of us relate to the world. And the reason the masters are radically inclusive, if we think about the epistle to the Romans in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, in the chapter 7, the Apostle Paul has a quite marvelous section that's quite famous, in which he talks about what Edgar Allan Poe called the imp of the perverse. That is how we continually do things that are not in our best interests, and we even know better, but we still do them anyway. I know I ought to do this, but I don't do it. I know I shouldn't do that, but I do it. It's a very universal thing, of course. And it's very eloquently expressed. But at the end, he says, in my inmost self, I love the law of God. And that is the whole point. You know, we do these things. We don't act in our best interests. We, Even if we know better, we know that God loves us. We know that God is love. We know that there is a certain way to live that he requires of us, partly which is summed up, those who seek mercy must be given mercy, as Master said to the Akalis. But in general, that of respect and love and appreciation for every manifestation of life. Because that life, as the first chapter of the Gospel of John makes clear, that is the Word. In him was light. The light was the life of human beings. Human beings, and for that matter, all life is alive because of the presence of the Word of God within us. And that is a very real thing. And that is why in our inmost self, on the level of that word, we love the law of God. And God knows that. And that is why he will not condemn us. Excuse me. He will do everything possible to bring us back to him. And he will spare no effort. Jesus talked about this in the 15th chapter of the Gospel of Luke the stories of the lost sheep, the lost coin and the lost son or the prodigal. The person searching, it is very clear that the parable refers the person searching is indeed God, and he is not going to let us get away. And that is why when he comes down to earth in the form of the living master, everything he does is aimed at bringing people back to him. Whatever level a person has, If a person's world consists of barley, bread, spinach, goat's milk, and lice, then he'll work in those ways. Somehow or other, he will reach a person where a person is. He does not mind a lot of things. There are many, many stories that the masters tell that indicate this. The story of the money lender who hadn't done one good deed in his life, And who met a master while he was foreclosing on a poor farmer after having given him a loan that was usurious. And the master had pity on him. He carried his luggage on his own head. And he told him that he didn't have one good deed in his favor. And he made it possible for him to avoid hell. And the story of the man with the three stuffed chapatis, which everybody knows, that... You know, the, the the greedy man, Sanchi always referred to him as, ate the, the stuffed chapati, the, as someone gave a master three stuffed chapatis for him to eat, and the master allowed another a guy to accompany him, who asked to go along with him, they were walking through the woods, and the guy whom master always calls the greedy man, when the master went to... And the call of nature, the greedy man went through his stuff, he was basically also a thief, found the three stuffed chapatis and ate one. That's what you do when you find food, right? You eat it. And when the master came back, he knew immediately uh, that the man had stolen one of his stuffed chapatis. So he said, did you take that stuffed chapati? And the, the, the man said, no, master, I did not take it, I swear. He was also, of course, a liar. This, they went on. They, various things happened. The Master worked miracles. There was a forest fire they avoided. And after each thing, the fire, there was a flood. There was a man-eating tiger. And he kept asking the man, Now, in the name of the God who saved us from the flood, who saved us from the fire, who saved us from the tiger, did you eat that third stuff chapati? And the man would keep saying, No, no, Master, I swear to God, in the name of that God, I did not eat that third stuff chapati. Sanche is used to say that Master was determined to make that man tell the truth because he wanted to shower grace on him. And he had to admit what he had done before he could be in a position to receive any. So finally the Master created a pile of jewels and gold on the ground, and he divided it into three piles, and he said to the greedy man, All right, one of these piles is for you, one is for me, And the third one is for whoever ate that third stuffed chapati. And the man at that point said, All right, Master, I I swear to God, I ate that third stuffed chapati. (laughs) You think about it. What would most of us do with somebody who is greedy, a thief, and a liar, who lied to us continually over something he had done? I think most of us would quite easily give up on him. But God doesn't do that. And he does not give up on us. He will bring us to him by whatever means are acceptable to us. And that is the point of his being radically inclusive. We all count. I want to conclude a few minutes reading a section from Master Kripal's magnificent seminal address as President of the World Fellowship of Religions in February 1965, which is another of my favorites, and I've often read this too. And again, I was present at this talk also, although Master gave this this talk in Hindi, and we didn't get the English translation until later in the day. He says, All the religions agree that life, light, and love are the three phases of the supreme source of all that exists, These essential attributes of the divinity that is one, though designated differently by the prophets and peoples of the world, are also wrought in the very pattern of every sentient being. It is in this vast ocean of love, light, and life that we live, have our very being, and move about. And yet, strange as it may seem, like the proverbial fish in water, we do not know this truth and much less practice it in our daily life. And hence the endless fear, helplessness, and misery that we see around us in the, wor- in the world in spite of all our laudable efforts and sincere strivings to get rid of them. Love is the only touchstone wherewith we can measure our understanding of the twin principles of life and light in us and how far we have traveled on the path of self-knowledge and God-knowledge. God is love. The soul in man is a spark of that love, and love again is the link between God and man on the one hand and man and God's creation on the other. It is therefore said, He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. Similarly, Guru Gobind Singh says, Verily I say unto thee, that he whose heart is bubbling over with love, he alone shall find God. Love, in a nutshell, is the fulfillment of the law of life and light. All the prophets, all the religions, and all the scriptures hang on two commandments. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. If we recognize that in our inmost self we love the law of God, we can see why one commandment is like unto the other. As the first epistle of John says, and Master often quoted, including in the video we saw last night, if any man says that he loves God and hates his brother, he's a liar. If you cannot love your brother whom you see, how can you love God whom you do not see? It's the same principle. Because God is within all of us. We are all children of God. We are all made in the image of God. This is the great truth of the universe. And it's, you know, it's so easy to forget it, but the path demands that we not forget it, that we remember it. Questioned as to our attitude toward our enemies, Christ said, love thine enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, pray for them that despitefully use you and persecute you, so that ye may be the children of your Father in heaven. Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. It is a divine command that we become like God. This is why when masters talk about being on the way to perfection, they are absolutely speaking the truth. It may seem a long, long way to us, but the fact is that with grace... And love and compassion from God, anything is possible. And Jesus said that also. With the yardstick of love, the very essence of God's character with us, let us probe our hearts. Is our life an efflorescence of God's love? Are we ready to serve one another with love? Do we keep our hearts open to the healthy influences coming from outside? Are we patient and tolerant toward those who differ from us? Are our minds coextensive with the creation of God and ready to embrace the totality of His being? Do we bleed inwardly at the sight of the downtrodden and the depressed? Do we pray for the sick and suffering humanity? If we do not do any of these things, we are yet far removed from God and from religion, no matter how loud we may be in our talk and pious in our platitudes and pompous in our proclamations. With all our inner craving for peace, we have failed and failed hopelessly to serve the cause of God's peace on earth. Ends and means are interlocked and cannot be separated from each other. We cannot have peace so long as we try to achieve it with warlike means and with the weapons of destruction and extinction. With the germs of hatred in our hearts, racial and color bars rankling within us, thoughts of political domination and economic exploitation surging in our bloodstream, We are working for wrecking the social structure which we have so strenuously built and not for peace unless it be peace of the grave but certainly not for a living peace born of mutual love and respect trust and concord that may go to ameliorate mankind and transform this earth into a paradise for which we so fervently pray and preach from pulpits and platforms, and yet as we proceed, it recedes away into the distant horizon. Where then lies the remedy? Is the disease past all cure? No, it is not so. Life and light of God are still there to help and guide us in the wilderness. We see this wilderness around us because we are bewildered in the heart of our hearts and do not see things in their proper perspective. This vast outer world is nothing but a reflex of our own little world within us. The seeds of discord and disharmony in the soil of our mind bear fruit in and around us and do so in abundance. We are what we think and see the world with the smoke-colored glasses that we choose to put on. It is a proof positive of one thing only, that we have so far not known the life and light of God, and much less realized God in man. We are off-center in the game of life. We are playing it at the circumference only, and never have a dip in the deepest waters of life at the center. This is why we constantly find ourselves caught in the vortex of the swirling waters on the surface. The life at the circumference of our being is, in fact, not different from the life at the center of our being. The two are, in fact, not unidentical. Yet, when one is divorced from the other, they look dissimilar. Hence the strange paradox The physical life, though a manifestation of God, is full of toil and turmoil, storm and stress, dissipation and disruption. In our enthusiasm and zest for outer life on the plane of the senses, we have strayed too far away from our center. Nay, we have altogether lost sight of it, and worse still have cut the very moorings of our bark and no wonder then we find ourselves tossing helplessly on the sea of life. Rudderless and without a compass to guide our course, we are unwittingly a prey to chance winds and waters and cannot see the shoals, the sandbanks, and the submerged rocks with which our way is strewn. In this frightful plight, we are drifting along the onrushing current of life. Where? We don't know. This world, after all, is not and cannot be so bad as we make it to be. It is a manifestation of the life principle of the Creator and is being sustained by His light. His love is at the bottom of all this. The world with its various religions is made for us and we are to benefit from them. One cannot learn swimming on dry land. All that we have to do is to correctly learn and understand the basic live truths as are embodied in our scriptures and practice them carefully under the guidance of some theocentric saint. These scriptures came into being by God-inspired prophets and as such some God-intoxicated person or a God-man can give us a proper interpretation of them initiate us into their right import by reconciling the seeming discrepancies of thought and finally help us inwardly on the God path. Without such a practical guidance, both without and within, we are trapped in the magic spell of forms and minds and cannot possibly reach at the esoteric truths lying under a mass of verbiage of the bygone ages and now solidified into fossils with the lapse of time, into institutionalized forms, formulae, and formularies of the ruling class." And Master goes on to explain the threefold aspect of religion, the traditional myths and legends, the philosophical treatises based on reason, and finally the esoteric part, the central core, in every religion meant for the chosen few, the genuine seekers after truth. It is this part called mysticism, the core of all religions, that has to be sifted and enshrined in the heart for practice and experience. And a couple of final words. Without taking any more of your time, I would like to emphasize one thing that all religions are profoundly good, truly worthy of our love and respect. The object of this conference, and this was the Third World Religions Conference, sponsored by the World Fellowship of Religions, of which Master was president at this time. The object of this conference is not to found any new religion, as we have already enough of them, nor to evaluate the extant religions we have with us. Again, we should shed the idea of drawing up one world religion, for all religions, like so many states, are, in spite of their variegated forms and colors, but flowers in the garden of God and smell sweet. The most pressing need of the time, therefore, is to study our religious scriptures thoughtfully and to reclaim our lost heritage. Everyone has in him, says a saint, a pearl of priceless value, but as he does not know how to unearth it, he is going about with a beggar's bowl. It is a practical subject, and even to call it a religion of soul is a misnomer, for soul has no religion whatsoever. We may, if you like, call it the science of soul. For it is truly a science, more scientific than all the known sciences of the world, capable of yielding valuable and verifiable results, quite precise and definite. By contacting the light and life principles, the primordial manifestations of God within the laboratory of the human body, which all the scriptures declare to be a veritable temple of God, we can virtually draw upon the bread and water of life, rise into cosmic awareness, and gain immortality. This is the be-all and end-all of all religions, and embedded as we all are in the one divinity, we ought to represent the noble truth of the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man. It is the living word of the living God and has a great potential in it. It has been rightly said man does not live by bread alone but by the word of God. And this word of God is an unwritten law and an unspoken language. He who by the power of the word finds himself can never again lose anything in the world. He who once grasps the human in himself understands all mankind. It is that knowledge by knowing which, everything else becomes known. This is the immutable law of the unchangeable permanence and is not designed by any human head. And the concluding paragraph. We must then sit together as members of the one great family of man so that we may understand each other. We are above everything else one, from the level of God as our Father, from the level of man as his children, and from the level of worshippers of the same truth or power of God called by so many names. In this august assembly of the spiritually awakened, we learn that we can learn the great truth of oneness of life vibrating in the universe. If we do this, then surely this world with so many forms and colors will appear a veritable handiwork of God, and we shall verily perceive the same life impulse enlivening all of us. As his own dear children embedded in him, like so many roses in his rosebed, let us join together in sweet remembrance of God and pray to him for the well-being of the world in this hour of imminent danger of annihilation which stares us in the face. May God, in his infinite mercy, save us all, whether we deserve it or not. And that prayer we may well echo.